1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This is an episode that originally aired on Africa, a history. And I don't, I'm not sure I really explained it in the episode. Um, but this is, this was one of the most difficult episodes I ever had to record. Uh, I mean, but I had, I had books on the Rwandan genocide from college. I had a class on it. I don't remember if it was uh, African anthropology or I had a class on the Holocaust. I don't think, um, I don't, I don't think, I'm not sure it was either of those, but, uh, yeah. So I, I guess I took some weird classes in college. Um, uh, but I still had those books and I re, I reread them, uh, you know, for this show and, uh, you know, referenced the movie like Hotel Rwanda and all that. Um, but that's, it was just kind of a, that's a rough, epic sort of event in, in history to, to wrap your mind around how such a thing was even like possible. Um, and yeah, Africa history the the podcast no longer exists. And, and I hope to kind of, you know, keep some of that history, uh, going here. Cause those topics interest me. I definitely have some more planned that I still planned on plan on doing. So there'll be just new content on this podcast about African history, and uh, I think, I hope that's fine with everyone, um, but this was definitely probably one of the more kind of important episodes I ever recorded, and Africa history didn't have that big of an audience, so um, yeah, I, I uh, hope everyone can kind of take something away from this, it's, it is, uh, it's a really, you know, it's, I don't even, I don't know how to like describe the Rwandan genocide in a paragraph, that's why I made it an whole. and normally my episodes were like five to fifteen minutes, and this is like, probably approaching an hour um or 45 minutes i guess um but yeah i mean it broke some records it's just the 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 shortness of it the brutality of it is is kind of what what makes it unique and makes it worth something to to look at and why i mean uh and hutus are you know not really distinguishable actually scientifically so anyways um yeah this is this is kind of uh my take on it Welcome to Africa, a history. Good evening, I'm Travis Dow. This episode, just to give you a fair warning, doesn't have a bunch of pleasant parts about it. I guess I could talk about the countryside of Rwanda, and the jungle, and how great it is, and that, and yeah, but we're not gonna. This is all about the genocide, really. Just, we'll get straight to it. The thing is, is I'm already worried that this is going to be a much longer episode uh, than the previous three, which were like 10 minutes apiece. So, yeah. Basically, to give you a definition... Rwanda has two main tribes. There's also the Tutsi and Hutu, Hutu being a majority. And the, the genocide began on April 6th, 1994, and only lasted about a hundred days, which is... Uh, that's not to say that it was, it was only three months and therefore it was a harmless genocide. No, this is one of the craziest um, events in human history. Um, in those 100 days, in those like some three months, the lowest estimate was 500,000 dead. The highest was around 1,174,000. Um, the UN brings it in around uh, 800,000. So that's three months. I mean, Hitler had 14 years to kill uh, 11 million people. Stalin had 30 years to kill his Um, millions of people. So this is crazy. This is like an order of magnitude more. And then if you consider that they did it with machetes and not through a mass infrastructure of trains and camps and ghettos and um, ID cards. Well, actually, they did have ID cards. Maybe, you know, as far as just killing just physical labor Um, the only people that might have killed more people in that short of time are maybe potentially possibly the mongols and still not a million in three months i mean they might have killed a couple hundred thousand in yeah just a few days which is that's i mean yeah okay the mongols might have the record but this is number two there's nothing else comes close so, this 100 days, if you can imagine, just basically continuous slaughter, um, it just spread through the whole countryside to the different regions. And like I've already mentioned in a previous episode, the, the bodies washed up all the way hundreds of miles away on the shores in Lake Victoria. So, going through Uganda and, I mean, just, yeah, the, the streams were dammed with the bodies. This really is just one of those events in human history. It is a superlative event of just atrocities and horribleness. Yeah, so how could this happen? And we're going to kind of work backwards here for a little bit because um, the the immediate events, because really the story goes way back. Like, why did Hutus hate uh, Tutsis? That kind of thing. But the immediate event was a plane crashed with the Rwandan president, Habyarimana, and as well as the um, Burundi president was on board, Tari Amira. It was a much more viral approach. It was a large population, a large percentage of the population took part in this. A number of sources said the population has a very compliant nature due to government authority. Um, that's kind of hard to really qual- qualify. So I'm, I'm also gonna point out my two main sources of this are Um, There's a book by Philip Gorovich called We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families. That's the title of the book. And that is actually, that's a quote from Hotel Rwanda, like, um, not Hotel Rwanda, Hotel de Milcolin, which is, that's the hotel that the movie Hotel Rwanda um, is based off of. And then the other book I have is called Season of Blood, A Rwandan Journey by Fergal Cain or Keen, yeah. The okay, so the military helped form and train militias. There, there was there was a lead up. Um, you could read the signs that this was about to happen. There was massive amounts of imports of uh, Chinese-made machetes, which okay, they all you know. There's a lot of rainforest, but it was mass. I mean, there were signs. There were quite a few red flags. These trained militias, which really, actually, they were pretty amateurish, which we're about to find out. But they were trained and just hacking, I guess. Um, and, and then they kind of spread the word to implore slash force other Hutus to aid them. Now, and, and they needed this. They needed the local support because... Hutus and Tutsis, as I'm going to point out here in a little bit later, um, are indistinguishable. Statistically speaking, they are identical. There is no difference between them. That makes this even crazier in a way. For decades, there was no difference between them. Um, if there ever was, I, I yeah. But, but basically, neighbors had to know. I mean, just your next-door neighbors would know whether you're Hutu or Tutsi um, just because they knew you, because it came up in conversation at some point otherwise not so i mean that's the thing so everybody really had to turn on each other for this to happen the way it did there were cases where husbands were compelled to kill their Tutsi wives um you know the husbands being hutus just so they wouldn't be killed themselves as a traitor so there was you know there was a lot of coercion in this but this could not have happened if it was not neighbor versus neighbor because again it just it was only known locally you for the most part, there were no clear markers. It all kind of boiled down to propaganda and made-up social views and stereotypes. Where did those come from? We're getting there. And the difficulty in in really even figuring out who was guilty, who's innocent, who what side, you know, where this all came from was because uh, the Hutus had no interest at all in keeping records. Like the, the government didn't care because the goal was genocide. The goal was total extermination of the Tutsis Therefore they would just be gone and we don't care how many there are. There's we don't care how many there are There will be zero that was the way they saw it. So counting just didn't matter. You just see a Tutsi you just hack at it Okay now, wait a minute, so how could this happen? Let's start backing up a little bit. Why did half of the population, well, it's more like 75%, why did they turn on the other 25%? And there's a third group in Rwanda, who I've also mentioned uh, just in the last episode, I believe, namely, the, there's a pygmy group called the Twa or Batwa, and these people, um, again, actually probably have the oldest ancestral claim in that, in that part of Africa, in Rwanda, and they're only about 1% of the population, and about 30% of them were wiped out in the genocide. And the Tutsi and, and um, Hutu are Bantu-speaking, um, Bantu-genetically, they're taller, um, part of the Bantu migration, so the, the so the pygmies were there first, meaning, um, yeah, the, the pygmies were also slaughtered as part of this ethnic cleansing. Now, okay, so here's where the facts kind of get blurry. The records that we can go back to are the the Belgian colonists who basically apparently made up the tribal history wholesale. Now there might have been this or that tale but the Belgians really for some reason romanticized the tribes they came across and there's still a lot of debate about the division of Hutu and Tutsis in reality. Um, some claim that the Hutu arrived first, the Tutsi later, There that there was a distinct racial group. Um, yeah, but with the Belgians, then either just fabricated out of, like, wholesale, or took a tiny piece of, of tribal history and blew it up into this tall tale is... They kind of saw the Tutsi as the tall, noble Tutsi. This um, this nobility, this aristocratic, this almost like more European and less African, which is extremely racist. But the Belgians were extremely racist. Not n- nothing against Belgians today. I mean, the cl- oh boy, here we go. Anyways. Um, and they saw the Hutu as short, working, you know, the, the labor force, really. So they saw it as aristocracy and the peasants. The Tutsis, under colonialism, might have actually enjoyed this because, yeah, they, they got all the rights. Um, they uh, really were lords over their Hutu um, underlings. This situation was created by the Belgians, by the colonists. Okay, now... The, the computing theory is that the gradual migration of common Bantu ancestors and that this division was a much later development related to class differences and then they went back and kind of you know embellished their histories. If differences existed before the Germans, um, the Germans were there before the Rwandans, and then the Belgians, they were really emphasized by those colonialists. The Hutu currently represent 84% of the population and the Tutsi around 15. The Hutu population was primarily farmers, whereas the Tutsi were herders, mostly of cattle. And the growing class distinction was only exacerbated by the arrival of first the Germans, German East Africa, um, which was uh, Rwanda and Burundi. And then um, following the Berlin Conference of 1884, and the Germans didn't really look to change the social or government structure, but simply just utilized whatever was there. They just supported the kings and chiefs for their own advantage. And, and we'll see this again um, when I talk about the Swahili uh, episode, which is coming up soon. Okay, then World War I happened. German lost all their colonies, basically, and Belgium took over. Sorry if I'm going fast, I'm already longer than my other episodes were, and we're not even, anyways. Um, yeah, so they emphasized, that's my point here, is that they emphasized this divide between Tutsi and Hutu. Okay, now, the Belgians created an identification card system in 1935. This might seem shocking since this is the same time when Nazi Germany was creating identification cards to distinguish between Jews and Aryans. So, yeah, but the the Belgians did this, too. Um, The Trois also, the the Pygmies also got their cards. And this this was used in the genocide as a way to, um, yeah, to distinguish who was who and who to kill and who not. Rwandans get their independence in 1959, and already we do see some trouble. There was a rumored assassination of a Hutu leader. There was this revolutionary zeal of um, arson, riots, targeting Tutsis. And there was a counterattack by the Tutsi government and the elites. And then they were repulsed with the assistance of the Belgians. So the Belgians got mixed in with this again. They still saw themselves as like trying to help the country out. Most of the Tutsi leadership was replaced with Hutus. And the Tutsi king was left with, he was just a figurehead. No, he had, had no real power. The king later fled the country, and I guess um, still lives in Oakton, Virginia, in in the states. Okay, now this led to the formation of a Hutu government in 1961, and then they got full independence in 1962. This revolution in the early 60s is estimated to have cost 20,000 Tutsi lives, which is nothing compared to the one in the 90s, but a lot of them fled, and this is the first wave of refugees, and the refugees is going to be critical, so pay attention. We have between 150,000, or double as many, 300 and something thousand, refugees living outside of, in camps, in the Congo, in uh, Uganda, and and the surrounding countries there in East East, uh, Africa. Some of them, now things started to settle down, some of them wanted to either integrate in the new society where they were, some of them wanted to slowly return and take control by force, and we do start to see some groups of armed people coming back to Rwanda and being repulsed, like there's armed conflict now. This, this, Tutsis wanting to come back from the first genocide, let's say, uh, the first um, rebellion in the early 60s, this just gave the extremist Hutu factions more power. Okay, so now Hutus actually have a reason to say, hey, look, they're, you know, foreigners now from outside the countries, from Congo and um, Uganda and other places are attacking us. Um, so Hutus are, are they? They're getting these arguments, but remember the Tutsi refugees left because of um, yeah, because of this revolution. And again, the Tutsis might have been in power before, so maybe there was some unfair things. I you know that's hard to say, but in any case, now Hutus are are definitely um, their rhetoric is starting to change, and and it's like it's seeming like foreign invasion. Okay, now here's another milestone. We see the rise of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF. These are those Tutsi refugees outside of Rwanda that are starting to get organized and are thinking about how to, you know, come back into Rwanda, basically. So this is critical because this is where the confusion will come in later. RPF equals Tutsi refugees, okay? Later I'm going to talk about Hutu refugees getting UN support. That's why I'm clarifying this. Now, with a large portion of the Tutsi diaspora finding itself in Uganda as refugees, this political entity formed, the RPF. This group started to play a role in the political activities in Uganda Uganda at this time had another, this is another person on the list that I'm going to talk about, which is uh, Idi Amin, which, who's also a dictator. There's a movie on him, and yeah, I'll cover him at some other point, but so he is... He's out. Idi Amin is gone. And much of the membership joined with the National Resistance Army, NRA, that fought government forces in the Ugandan Bush War. So this is a civil war within Uganda. Okay, but stay with. this isn't so critical, but just stay with me. Now, the government didn't care for this, so they attempted to push the Rwandans back to the camps, their refugee camps, or into Rwanda, because they were, you know, back into Rwanda. Now this only further pressed the Tutsis into the NRA, um, and when the NRA successfully took control of Uganda, now we have a government led by Rwandan Tutsis in Uganda. They appreciated the age of the Rwandan refugees and offered citizenship to those having been in the country for at least 10 years. Now let's fast forward a couple of decades here. So now we're in uh, 1987. The RNA has a large membership with military experience, they're capable of fighting, and now they rename themselves the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Okay, so 1990, we come to the Rwandan Civil War. The Rwandan president in Uganda was still very aware of this delicate situation, and while the government in Uganda appreciate their contributions, the Ugandan people weren't thrilled to see top positions go to Rwandans instead of Ugandans. OK, remember, these are refugees. These are foreigners. Why are they running the country now? These tensions rose, kept getting stronger. And finally, the RPF makes plans to retake Rwanda. And they they need to go home. They need to really fix this because they're, they're losing support in Uganda. Now, the Rwandan Civil War starts October 1st, 1990, when the RPF invades northern Rwanda from Uganda. Again, the Hutus are going to see this as a foreign invasion, just period, and even get international help, which doesn't help anything. Um, Okay, now, because they have Ugandan military support, um, you add the element of surprise on this, and the inferior, uh, numerically inferior, RPF forces manage to take significant uh, control over big chunks of this northwestern or northeastern part of Rwanda and now the head of the RPF dies there's there's debate of, of what happens and it doesn't really matter it might have been a straight bullet to the head others say it was a conflict with the sub commander the sub commander was killed which means maybe you know that story could be true it doesn't matter the point is, Because this is seen as a foreign invasion, the French and Belgians send troops to support the Rwandan Hutu government. Now remember, this is not a foreign invasion. These are Rwandan um, refugees who have now been outside of the country for up to 30 years. They just want to come back. Hutu are able to spin this internationally and get French and Belgians on their side. The French and Belgians are now fighting the the Tutsi refugees, which just blows my mind. Anyways, um, okay, so with the leadership all cut off, uh, the element of surprise dying out, now you have, you know, European forces getting mixed in. So in this time, the new Tutsi uh, leader takes charge, uh, Paul Kagami. He is, this is an important uh, person. The reason this guy is important is that he wasn't in this initial part of the invasion. He was actually getting training in uh, the US Fort Leavenworth. So, yeah, so we have one person being trained by the Americans and then heading the RPF. And he is um, then fighting, you know, <laughs> fighting French and Belgian troops. They get pushed back to the Ugandan borders. Eventually, he he he's able to retreat very well, and actually, he he gets three months to kind of train the soldiers. Now he's back from the states. He's training the Tutsis, and his for you know his forces were forced to retreat. They're totally demoralized, retreating. But he kept them together. He was able to train them. Um, long story short, they they start taking control again. They start actually winning against the French and Belgians. This guy's you know U.S. trained. And they they start using uh, guerrilla tactics very well. July 13th, 1992, he's able to negotiate a ceasefire, and they signed the Arusha Accords in Tanzania.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? This, okay, this is a ceasefire. This is not a peace treaty. This is not even a truce. This is pretty shaky. And it doesn't seem to actually be working that well. And in February 93, they mobilize again. They retake some territory. They make a run at the capital. The French government didn't like this and basically helped fortify the government forces with French paratroopers. So the French really get involved. Now the RPF decide to declare a ceasefire again, because it didn't work out and return to the bargaining table. Okay, this piece was uncomfortable, it lasted, it held up until the downing of President Habiarimana's plane by anti-aircraft fire as it landed in Kigali Airport. Both sides end up blaming the other, so it's not clear what actually happened. And because both sides had legitimate reasons to kill the president. So the Tutsi's reasoning is pretty straightforward. He was you know, he was the president of the government they opposed. The Hutu reason is slightly more nuanced because the Hutu reason there was a very extremist faction inside the government, one that advocated the treatment of the minority of the Tutsi minority as a much more existential threat to the Hutu people. That's that's what makes them extremists. They were extremely racist. Um, that, that's that part of the government, and they view the president as being much too lenient. In fact, they, they saw the RPF as about to take control, and so they wanted a more extremist president there. So both sides wanted the president dead. I'm not going to give you my opinion on this. I, I don't know who killed the president. Um, no one really knows this for sure, I guess. Um, at least, I mean, the, book, the books that I have are just the, just debate both sides. But this, and and now here's the weird, here's kind of the weird thing, because when the president dies, the reaction is swift. So, um, and like I said, the planning had been months before this, so there's definitely a reason to believe that the Hutus killed their own Hutu president. Um, but in any case, now that's the straw, that, it's not really a straw, but that definitely broke the camel's back, the genocide begins the military, police, and militias, the Interahamwe, this is the extremist factions, the ones that are going to do the, the killing, and the Impuzamugambi, Interahamwe and the Impuzamugambi, uh, begin their killings almost immediately. The Tutsi, however, were not the only target. Also, they were after, well, the Pygmies, but also the moderate Hutus needed to be eliminated, so the, the whole population kind of became more extremist and... and um, Polarized, but like immediately, the the biggest target here was the prime minister, um, who was far too tolerant, and he was the next in line to take um, power following the president's death. And despite being placed under protection of the UNAMIR, the Union Peacekeeping Mission in uh, Rwanda, her home was surrounded, and since the UN officers had no authority to engage the attackers, they were forced to surrender. This blows my mind by the way so the UN and this happened so many times in this conflict um, the UN the UN officers just had no authority and they just let the Prime Minister be arrested and killed the UN has since changed the way they do things also, to horrible effect. It just seems like no one ever understands when there's foreign aid and when we need troops on the ground. No one seems to know enough about the local situation to actually help. So, in this case, the UN couldn't do enough. And in future, um, especially under the, the reign of Bill Clinton, they, they might have done too much. Um, I don't, yeah, that's, those are all different stories. But okay, so, so UN fail here badly. The Belgian peacekeeping forces withdraw after the prime minister is tortured and killed. A Senegalese UN observer, Mbaye Diagne, I'm sorry for butchering all these names, I'm sure, uh, managed to locate the the prime minister's children and hid them in the back of his vehicle undercover and transported them to Hotel de Mille This is the hotel that is... um, the basis of the movie Hotel Rwanda. If you don't know that movie, it's just like wow. So, while everybody was being killed all around them, um, basically, this one guy, this hotel manager, all the owners who were all white Europeans, they, uh, yeah, I don't want to say, uh, yeah, they all just left um, and went back to Europe. And, uh, you know, all of the all of the foreigners, the, the European dignitaries and the journalists and everybody, they were all told to evacuate, and most of them did. The vast majority, all of them, basically did. The exception here was, uh, well, I mean, this guy was Rwandan, so he had no choice, I guess. He didn't have anywhere to be evacuated to. But he just kind of locked down the um, hotel and was able to, I mean, it's just such a great story. I really would recommend the movie. He was just able to stop the Hutus you know through small bribes through his he, he was very connected um just he was you know part of the gift-giving culture i guess he was just very you know liked by everyone and he was able to stop armed men uh, at the gates just you know saying hey no you can't come here and and all the time i mean the so the quote of that the book title We wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. That was in Hotel Rwanda, in Hotel de Mille Collines, where they just thought, yeah, like, this is our last night on Earth. Tomorrow they're gonna come in and they're gonna butcher all of us. They basically thought that just about every day for the whole three months. Now, by the end of April 7th, the entire moderate leadership was dead or on the run. We have extremists in charge. And we have the failure of the UN peacekeeping force. They just kind of dropped the ball here. One of the key proponents of this point of view being Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire, he was the commander of UNAMIR. And following the death of the Belgian troops, the rest of the Belgian forces withdrew. And on April 9th, a European force arrived to aid in the extraction of European civilians, okay, but didn't help the UN forces. And so again, so troops' boots were on the ground to get the white folk out, let's put it that way. Not to stop the genocide in any way, it was to evacuate the Americans and Europeans and so forth. Now, I am way over my limit, I didn't want these episodes to get this long. What happened was, yes, so eventually, things change. We get UN forces from like Ethiopia and other places, not not so many Europeans. and um, the the genocide stops. The RPF can really take control. Long story short. Um, I don't want to go into so many gruesome details. You can go watch documentaries out there. There's still uh, museums of um, just so many of the just the mass graves and the bodies. It was just so. It was like a it's like a plague, except it wasn't a plague. It was just so much of the population died so fast that you have the effects of a plague, basically. It was just insane. So mass graves, people are still buried. You can go look at museums. I mean, if you go to Rwanda, there's museums where you just see the corpses as they were piled up. They kind of covered them with like a tarp tent sort of deal. And you can just go in there and see them. They're they're still wearing their clothes. They're just piled up. And it's, it's a way to, you know, kind of not forget the past. And so this can never happen again. Today, you know, you don't ask a Rwandan whether they're Hutu or Tutsi. They're Rwandans because, I mean, because the, the differences were just exaggerated. It's just crazy. I'll read you um, the very end of the book, uh, Season of Blood, has a nice timeline in here. And I like the way they put it. Uh, well, I mean, they, they put it very concisely. Uh, the 8th of April, this is just days after the genocide, the RPF launches a major offensive to end the genocide. They rescue 600 of its troops. Um, The 21st of April, so just like two weeks after it starts, the UN cuts the level of its forces from uh, by 10, like, from 2,500 to 250. That's, they took out 90% of their troops away uh, following the murder of the 10 Belgian soldiers. So 10 Belgian soldiers die, and they decide to get rid of the whole 2,500 people, basically. Um, That just boggles my mind. Uh, Then 30th of April... Less than a month after the genocide started, the UN Security Council spends eight hours discussing the Rwandan crisis. The resolution condemning the killing omits the word genocide. They're afraid to use it. They're I mean, this also blows my mind. They're, they're, they don't want to call it a genocide because that means certain things. Yeah. Meanwhile, just there's thousands of refugees. Now, first, they're all Hutu refugees just trying to escape with their lives, and. I mean, again, if you watch these documentaries, you see people with the, the survivors were all left for dead. You see people just missing limbs. You see people with gashes across their head because again, the genocide happened with the use of machetes. It's just a brutal, brutal way to do this. It, and it it takes hard work. Uh, so there was a lot of hate there. So in one day, we have 250,000 Rwandans mainly Hutus now fleeing the advance of the RPF, because now the RPF is is on the attack, then they are winning. The RPF now is fully trained. In fact, they've had now decades of fighting, well, a decade of fighting, and the Hutus, the people that are actually sitting there with machetes doing the slaughter, are amateurs. They're they are nothing more than murderers. That's it. They're just murderers. It's like if your neighbor came over and started hacking at you with a machete. And now really good veteran troops are coming. So the RPF were making huge gains. The RPF, long story short, spoiler, the RPF take over. Um, 17th of May. Now the slaughter of Tutsis is, is still happening. The UN finally agrees. This is almost two months after the genocide starts to send 6,800 troops. Only they send the the troops and policemen to Rwanda to defend civilians mostly. The meanwhile, now the main the mainly African UN forces, like I mentioned, like there's a lot of Ethiopians that start coming down. They start to squabble. They start to, you know, they're not sure who's going to pay for this. Literally, they're squabbling about who's going to pay the bill. This is, I mean, this just like, wow. Anyways, 22nd of June, with still no sign of the actual deployment of UN forces. You know, this is a month later. I just said that with the previous squabbling was 17th of May. Fast forward a month, still not there. The French come back in they start to come in from the southwest of Rwanda, and they create a safe area, quote-unquote. This is crazy. This is... I can't believe... The, the So, the French and Belgians here, they do not come away good in this story. Actually, the French and Belgians don't come away good in this whole podcast. I'm not going to lie. Anyways. Um, so, they create a safe area. The killing of... Tutsis continues in the safe area because the French are actually more worried about this quote-unquote terrorist organization, the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Remember the the Tutsi refugees that left 30 years ago and are now coming back? Yeah, this is crazy. So the United States government eventually uses the word genocide. The UN won't, the US will. And finally, July 94, the final defeat of the Rwandan army by the Rwandan Patriotic Front. The government flees to Zaire, the Hutu government. So now hold on. And this is followed up by a human tide of refugees, Hutus, leaving the country in front of the uh, Tutsi counterattack. The French and their mission, they give up. They're replaced by these Ethiopian UN troops. And the RPF sets up the, the interim government in Kigali. That's the, that's the capital. There's a cholera epidemic in the refugee camps in Zaire, killing thousands. And, okay, now, this is, this is crazy. This is, this is the part that really hurts the most. Internationally, at this time, if you just flipped on CNN, you probably heard about a cholera epidemic in the refugee camps which refugee camps? The Hutu ones in the Congo. These are the refugee camps where the murderers are. These are murderers dying of cholera. We should be celebrating this in a way, but we don't. We see this as a human crisis. Um, Okay, now the RPF are not blameless. They're not saints here. There are reprisal killings in Rwanda. Hutus are fleeing for a reason. Several hundred civilians are said to be, have been executed. There are also Tutsis in these refugee camps in the Congo. They are keep getting killed. The Hutus keep killing people in the refugee camps and in the safe zone, which no longer exists, but even in the safe zone, they kept killing people. Now cholera breaks out. Now, in the international news, you are made to feel sorry for these, uh, these Hutu uh, refugee camps. And the most extreme... Murders the most extreme um, people that orchestrated the genocide, they're now holding the other lesser evil uh, Hutus and the other uh, refugees basically at ransom. So they're getting UN help, they're getting all these um, foreign aid and everything, and they're not letting people flee the refugee, uh, leave the refugee camps because um, the, in, mo- the more innocent Hutus can leave the refugee camps and come back the rpf said okay we're done with killing you may now come home we just want the the leadership we want the guilty party we want to put them in front of an international court but the murderers don't let the people leave so they say if you leave that makes you one of the terror that makes you one of the um tootsie conspirators Internationally, though, we don't know this. We just think that this is a, a human aid crisis, and uh, these poor Hutus um, being slaughtered by the, the RPF, who's uh, Tutsi. Um, so the whole geno- so the, the genocidal maniacs were made to feel sorry for them by like the BBC and CNN and all those guys. Um, to distill all this information and kind of sort it all out, um, I had a lot of help from Jeffrey Cameron. As such, I, I asked him what what uh, if he has any project he'd like to plug, or if he's doing anything on his own. A- and he doesn't. But he has a friend who actually works with Dallaire. Um, Dallaire is now working with the Romeo Dallaire. That's the guy I mentioned. Um, the Child Soldiers Initiative. This is an organization trying to end child sol- soldiers that that you know still happens to this day in Africa which is a very um, honorable and needed cause, I would say. Because, um, I mean, if you're not aware, yes, children are being pressed into military service uh, in different parts of Africa and for different reasons and for different factions and all of this. But so again, that's the Romeo Delaire Child Soldiers Initiative. Um, they get the shout out on this episode as you know, Africa still has these kind of issues. There is still violence. There is still kidnappings. Not necessarily this this thing in Rwanda, but but it's interesting that this guy was involved here. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would I would appreciate it if, if you would take a look at the organization, kind of educate yourself on what's happening. and you know if if they're a charity, if um, I'm sure they they accept donations and that kind of thing, and uh, I would not be opposed to to that and uh, asking you to do that. So absolutely thats that's a great that's a great shout out. I'm happy more than happy to do that. Um, yeah, Okay, so to wrap this up, it's, it's not clear cut. I don't want to paint the, the Tutsis as the sole victims. Um, you know, they were definitely treated preferentially by the Belgians, uh, by the col- uh, colonialists and all that, and, and were definitely the people in power. There was massive amounts of disc- discrimination against Hutus and f- for the Tutsis, they were romanticized as the tall, noble, more white, um, more like, you know, something like the Queen of Sheba type of thing or the, you know, of, of coming from Egypt, um, this noble race of of people, whereas the Hutus were the um, stupider, stronger, you know, not just just fit for physical labor, labor kind of things, and uh, the Tutsis went with that. You know, I mean, they they were happy to rule. Um, when the revolution happened, they got theirs, and were forced to flee, and this this caused the this you know long story short that caused the RPF. And uh, then the genocide happened where the Tutsis definitely got theirs. I, I mean, that was like, wow. And when the RPF came back, the Tutsis took control again. The Hutus were, were made to feel, you know, we're, we, the international community, was made to feel sorry for the Hutu in the refugees camps in, in Zaire in the Congo. Um, so it's not clear cut. It's, it's, it's a confusing, confounded story. I'm sure there's not one, you know, one side that's 100% to blame and the other not. But it is pretty hard to defend genocide no matter who you are or what you do. I mean, in this story, uh, the Hutus were the bad guy. And even after they were refugees, the extremists of the Hutu uh, genociders were keeping the lesser people from leaving the refugee camps. So it's not like Yeah, so so really, no, 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 they are to blame. Not not all the Hutus, obviously not all the Hutus, um, but that extremist faction was the bad guy in the beginning, they were the bad guy in the end, they're the bad guy. Um, Now, that was 1994, that was more than 20 years ago, Rwandans themselves would like nothing better than for, not for us to forget this, because forgetting means it could happen again, just like you should never forget the Holocaust um, and the murder of gypsies and Jews and, and that kind of thing, or Roma, sorry. You know, don't forget this, but also you don't want to say Hutus are evil, that's ridiculous. Um, that's just silly. Don't don't ask a Rwandan whether they're Tutsu, Tutsi or Hutu. If they have massive scars on their face or elsewhere, then they're they're Tutsi. Uh, that's pretty simple. Anyways, um, okay. This is 45 minutes. This is four times longer than my other episodes, and I apologize. The crazy thing is, is that I'm still obviously oversimplifying. So if you want to learn much more, I do recommend a, a season of Blood by Fergal keen and we wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families stories from rwanda by philip Gorovich. and otherwise i mean uh definitely watch hotel rwanda definitely definitely watch that movie and maybe i'll pick a more cheerful topic for the next episode um i think now i, I got my downloads that i wanted so i will now put this on itunes so it should be there very shortly and uh, thank you so much for listening. I am a member of the Agora Podcast Network and also of the Dark Myths Collective. And you can find links to all of that and much, much more my other shows uh, like The History of Germany, The History of Alchemy, Bohemican Podcast, which I highly recommend, The Secret Cabinet, which I also highly recommend, and uh, a couple of shows I do in German. You can find all of that on podcastnik.com. That's podcastnik.com. Feel free. I would love it if you followed me on Twitter. That's at podcastnik. Or like one of my Facebook pages. Like the history of... I don't have one for the show yet. Maybe I'll start one. Um, I don't want to... I just... I don't want to be depressed all the time. And I think I don't want... People posting negative stuff like this episode, I'd rather you post positive stuff like how awesome pygmies are, that kind of thing, or the sun, or whatever. But um, yeah, anyways, uh, podcastnik.com, that's podcastnik.com, and I definitely hope to see you around. Since this is a new show, I would love, love some reviews on iTunes. Now that the show's gonna be there within a day or two, that is the single best way you can help out a new show. Help me get onto new and noteworthy, means helping me be discoverable by other people. Why is that important? you're You're an Android user. that's cool. Um, but still, about eighty percent of my downloads come from iTunes at least because uh, everything else just feeds off of iTunes. Um, yeah, so anyways, uh, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll put this up on Google music play too eventually, but yeah, everything comes from iTunes. All your podcatchers get stuff from iTunes. So even if you hate Apple, uh, that's fine. I don't, I like it, but <laughs> if you hate Apple, it's cool. Still, I would love it if you logged into iTunes and gave me a, 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 a um, five star rating or, you know, said a nice couple of words, even if you hate me, that's cool. Give me a one-star rating and, and, and insult me. I think that still helps me, actually. So, so uh, yeah, go ahead and, and do that. iTunes is what I'm asking for this time. Take a look at podcastnick.com. And I hope to be back shortly. Thanks for listening.